by genre, starting with the Torah in just a few weeks. Um, but before we even start reading the Bible, there are some considerations, right? So a few weeks ago, the first week, we talked about the big picture of the Bible, right? Going from the macro down to the micro, the universe down to the front, our front door, right? So we talked from at that level. And then last week, uh, we were talking about the ways that we can read the Bible, the, the different methods of doing it and some, some interpretive difficulties there. And this week, uh, we start off by looking uh, at the Gospel of John, right? The last few weeks, we some ancient manuscripts, but today we look at a more modern manuscript or uh, version of the Bible. This is the Gospel of John, the very first pages here, and this comes from uh, the St. John's Bible, copyright 2002, right? So there are, as we all know, there are lots of different kinds of Bibles, right? You've got black and white text. I'm not sure why it's doing that. Uh, you've got black and white text. You've got uh, colored text, right? We've got words in red, of the words of Jesus in red. Sometimes I've seen multiple colored text Bibles. Then you get some pictures. Then you get some really fancy pictures. And then you get this, which I just think is just beautiful and spectacular here. It is, um, let's trade. Check, check, check. There we go. I may need batteries, though. <laughs> There's always something, right? So here we see um, this is somewhere between text and picture. And it's not just picture as much as it is uh, a little abstract, right? And the word became flesh, right? So here are some words becoming flesh. Isn't that a beautiful, isn't that a beautiful way to to bring your mind into the text and to, to illuminate the manuscript, right? So that is how we begin. And today, we're continuing a conversation of how to read the Bible, but we're doing so with a particular uh, focus. We start with a quote. We don't read the Bible literally. We read it literately, uh, and this comes from a, a new book by Rob Bell, What is the Bible? Uh, and I, I'm still going on that. I do not know what's going on. Um, there are several um, things here, right? Literally, about the last few weeks, I'm just not going to move my head. Maybe that'll do it. Maybe I'll just move my whole body. I don't know. Um, we've talked about in the last last few weeks how um, reading the Bible literally can be problematic. This is my body, this is my blood. Well, who actually believes that when you take communion, this is the body and blood of Christ? We say that, but we mean it metaphorically, at least in the Protestant tradition. It's only in the Catholic tradition that it becomes uh, something that they take very literally. But they have a, a whole host of other traditions um, beyond just the literal reading of Scripture. So they don't really even read Scripture literally either. But to read something literately means we have to engage Scripture as literature, right? So all those English classes from either a few years ago, if you're on the younger side, or a few decades ago, if you may be a little on the older side, right? All those things that you learned, like simile and metaphor and uh, onomatopoeia, and right, all those sorts of things are things we're going to dive in today and talk about how those are found throughout Scripture. Yeah. So how should we understand the printed... We talked about this. I'm just going to switch earpieces completely. Maybe it's the connector here. So do we just have one book of Scripture? Uh, and we talked about these things a few weeks back. Or do we have more like a library or a compendium? As we approach the Scriptures, we need to keep these things in mind. Is it more like a library? Just one book? Who wrote the books of the Bible, right? The question of authorship is very important here. 
When did these authors write? What was the dating of their writing? Where did they write? What was the condition? And to whom did they write? So questions. Is this a little? Am I on? Can you hear me now? Headset two. Oh, it's low battery now. <laughs> it's just everything. Oh, goodness, Good, goodness gracious. So, um, to whom did they write, and in what language for it did they write? See, these are some general questions that can, uh, that can be important. Check one, check, I'm on headset two. Check one, check, 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 check. There we go. Check one. There we go. A little better? Aha, and hopefully it won't crackle anymore. Okay. So we talked about these things a few weeks ago. So these are considerations that we already have in mind. But then we need to start talking about the structure of Scripture, right? The division of the books. Divisions, uh, like the Hebrew Bible, in the ancient Hebrew as it was written, there were divisions in the text, um, but those don't really necessarily carry over into modern translations. And sometimes the ancient methods of dividing the scriptures um, are very different from ours, right? Um, so you'll see in some Bibles it'll say, in, the he in, in your if you're the study Bible or if you have some notes in the margin, it'll say in the Hebrew, this is actually chapter, the next chapter, verse 1, but here it's the previous chapter, verse 23, right? You'll see that kind of stuff. Uh, and the chapters, as we know them, were added to the manuscripts, right? So we talked about the formation of the canon, how the Bible that we have came together, but but... It did, and it was still Genesis, right? You just had one book of Genesis, 50 chapters. You had one book of Matthew. What We have 28 chapters. They didn't have that. They just had the book of Matthew. And if it, it, over time, as people studied and uh, literacy grew and diffusion of these materials increased, uh, in order to study things, in order to reference things better, they, had, they wanted to add chapters. Right? I bring this up, um, and then verses came about later, 1553. Um, I bring this up because sometimes when we read our modern Bibles, we say, oh, well, that's in the next chapter, so that doesn't matter. That's not important to this story. Well, chapters are post-biblical invention, as are verses, right? So in order to understand the narrative, we can't just stop at a certain point because some, somebody in the 13th or 16th century said so. We have to remember there is a broader narrative going on. So we can't just stop at chapter and verse division all the time. Um, and the very first English Bible to use both chapters and verses was published in 1560, the Geneva Bible. And modern translations, some versions, have actually done away with those verses and uh, chapter divisions, trying to lean into a more literary, right? Reading the Bible as a novel rather than, I will read one chapter today, I will read one chapter tomorrow, right? That is, again, this is a post-biblical invention. So the message and the story, uh, they've done away with um, some of those divisions, those artificial divisions. And of course, I hope we all know that section titles, right? So. Jesus heals the woman, right, or uh, the birth of, the genealogy of Jesus, all of those things are done by editors, they will, they will differ from Bible to Bible, uh, and those are, of course, also not original. Now, I want to do, I want to consider um, f that formatting gives meaning, right, so I was just look, a few moments ago, I was looking at the King James Version of the Bible, and the way that the, those editors and, and writers formatted, they had every verse was a different paragraph, right? Um, most modern 
Bibles and versions do not do that. But formatting can give some meaning or, or highlight some meaning. So here, uh, here's the first few verses of Psalm 19. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. You see that there's some parallels. Heaven, firmament, his handiwork, glory, day to day, night to night, speech knowledge. In this kind of poetic parallelism, you see by the formatting that there is some, some connection being made. But then... In this, right, this is the King James, where each verse gets its own paragraph, and there's no sense of division or indentation. Um, you, can, you, can be, you can read it, but unless you're very clued in, you may not see that parallelism, right? So formatting, the, just the way in which the text is printed on the page, or written, indented, all those things can give meaning. Then I want to talk about genres, and we've hinted at this uh, in the last few weeks already. But uh, genres designate the literary form or type into which works are classified, right? So we can talk about genres of music, genres of literature, uh, genres of art. But what do these things have in common? Once they start having common features, they are grouped together, right? You don't set out to say, I'm going to invent a genre. No, you, it's... You can't do it. It has to be, if it's just one, it's not part of a genre, right? It has to be a, a body of works that are comparable and that share features. And by realizing that, we can then uh, read those stories together in those genres in different ways. And so as we do this and we study genres, it can be of value in three ways. We can, uh, by grouping them, it can help us to talk about them together, right? So the narratives of the Bible or the apocalyptic literature, right? Daniel and Revelation, there are some commonalities there. And so when we enter in through the level of genre, uh, we can talk about certain things uh, as a group. But we can also then understand and have a better idea of the overall intended structure of a particular subject. And it can also, uh, having a genre approach, can deepen our sense of the value of any text by saying, here I am reading and studying this text, but I'm having trouble. I don't get all of it. Well, let me look at this other text that's in the same genre. Oh, that's what he's doing here. I didn't get it when, when, he just, when I just read it here. It didn't make a whole lot of sense. But then I saw that he does it and he does it and she does it. It's everywhere. This is a common theme. Everyone's doing this, right? That is another way that genre can help. So history, narratives, right? Epics like Gen Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, all the way down. Those are history or narrative. And I want to point one thing out, that we use the word history to mean something that actually happened most often. Uh, most other languages don't necessarily have that, right? In Spanish, the word historia, we, you sometimes have to say, is it a big H or a little H, right? Because big H actually happened, little H, it's just a story. The word for story in Spanish is historia, the same exact word, right? So, um, so saying history doesn't necessarily imply everything actually factually historically happened, um, as it was. And we've talked about that in the last few weeks. Then we have the law, the instructions of God. What, is, what does uh, God want God's people to do? We have wisdom literature, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And those are maxims and short sayings, right? In like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. How do you read those? How do you contextualize them? It's not in a narrative. And you can't go to Proverbs and say, oh, this actually happened, because it's not it's not something that happened. It's like, you know, blessed is the man who walked... No, well, that's all Psalms. But, you know, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. That didn't actually happen. It's not history. It's, it's, it's wisdom. Poetry, Psalms, Song of Solomon, Lamentations, Prophecies, Apocalyptic Literature. And we can talk about certain books as belonging to genres, or we can talk about narrative units, right? So within the Gospels, which is a kind of genre... You also have parables, right? So when Jesus healed someone, that's not a parable. 
But when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan or the um, wicked land or the wicked tenant or any of those, those are parables. And that's a particular genre. So you could look at all the parables and side by side. How do we read these? How do we understand them? And of course, we've also got in the New Testament lots of uh, letters uh, written to particular audiences, um, also called epistles. And there's also romance, narr narrative, like love stories, Ruth and the Song of Solomon, right? So it's important to know about genre because we, it helps us to understand an author's intent. So I said this a few weeks ago, and I'll say again, we, what is, you, we want to know genre because we don't want to get confused. And the thing I keep, I keep coming back to is if in a thousand years somebody was going through a house that you know, was destroyed by who knows what, and they found this book, Harry Potter, and they said, wow, what is this? And they start reading it as if it were a history textbook, how would that be problematic? Anybody? Anybody want to take that? I think we all know why, right? That it's not history. It is not a history textbook. You can't go to England and, tr and find Hogwarts Castle, right? You can't find actual Harry Potter. Daniel Radcliffe doesn't count, right? Um, that would be problematic. Now, what if someone opens up to our biblical book of Genesis, reads the first 11 chapters, and calls it a science textbook? Is that a confusion of genre? I would argue that it probably is. Um, because our Jewish brothers and sisters, they don't read Genesis like some Christians do. They don't make whole museums around the idea that this is a science textbook, and we have to take it word for word. But what about the book of Revelation, right? Um, I don't know about anybody else, but I, I grew up on these, right? In the Southern Baptist Church, I probably read a good, good half, if not most, of those Le Left Behind series because I thought Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, they had the key. They knew how to read Revelation much better than I did at 14. And so, wow, they know everything that's going to happen. And I didn't even know about, you know, that this was a novel. I thought maybe they just knew exactly how it was going to work out. So they read this. They read the book of Revelation as, this is exactly the way it's going to happen. And so, we're going to create a story around that. Um, that is how they have read the apocalyptic literature, or the book of Revelation. But as we talked about last spring, apocalyptic literature is often coded language for the sake of giving hope to a people who are persecuted, right? Right? So as Daniel was uh, written uh, to a people who were being persecuted, and we couldn't say, guess what, God's got this, uh, and the, the king is going to soon die, and you're going to all be free, and you're going to be safe. You can't do that. You're going to be killed for writing that, or your letter's never going to make it anywhere because everyone's going to know what's on the page. You've got to code it. You've got to do it in such a way, use all this imagery that other people will get, but the censors and the, the police won't get, right? Um, so for me, I think that uh, while Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins are now very rich on this Left Behind franchise, they may have confused the genre a little bit in, in writing and understanding um, the book of Revelation and then these books on it. So now we're going to just do a, a mixture of various topics. Uh, so throughout the scripture, we talked about a few weeks ago, there are some uh, obscenities, some vulgarities in scripture, and some right on the surface level. You can read it and, whoa, that's there in the Bible, or you can look, maybe the translators have softened it a bit, and we'll come to those two in a, in a moment. Uh, Isaiah 64, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That's not so bad in the English. But this is not just a polluted garment, right? This is garment of menstruation or menstruation rags. That really gives quite an image, right? Uh, and the translators here didn't want to go there, right? So polluted garment, more like menstruation rags. And that is, um, that is an image that sticks with you. 
and that is an image that says everything that we are, everything that we, all of our righteous good things are like that. Not just a polluted garment, but there's something visceral about understanding it in that way. Uh, Ezekiel 23.20, Jerusalem lusted after her paramours there, whose members were like those of donkeys, and whose emission was like that of stallions. You're telling me that it's in the Bible? That's in the Bible. I'm not even going to talk about that one. Okay. Uh, Song of Solomon 5.14, his body is polished ivory, where body is referring to a man's midsection, and the image of ivory is intended as sexual innuendo, right? Think of, think of a tusk of ivory, the direction and everything. Okay, you've got it, right? This is, and again, this is not, this is not poetry, this is not just poetry or history or parable, this is romance, right? Song of Solomon. So it's not uh, just like those romance novels you can pick up at the line in the grocery store. Uh, it's going to have some, some steamy language in it. Song of Solomon, it's got some colorful words in there too. We talked about this a few weeks ago. And Philippians, for his sake I have suffered, this is Paul speaking, and I regard um, them as scubalon, rubbish. That's how the, our English translation has it. Um, this is probably closer to crap or maybe even a little stronger than that. If we see that in the Bible, what do we do? right? Um, you may say, are you kidding me? This is in here? This is the Bible? You can't, you can't swear in the Bible. Well, Paul did. So what do we do with that, right? Um, related to this, we've already started talking about euphemisms, right? There are, there's softening of the literal with some substitution, right? So instead of saying someone died, um, you say he passed away. Right? Or instead of saying, I've got to hit the John, I've got to go to the bathroom, you say, oh, I'm going to go powder my nose. Right? And, but you only say that if you're a woman, right? You can't be a man and say, I'm go, going to powder my nose. People are going to look at you funny. Right? So there's all these sorts of things as we talk about language in English, we have to realize these sorts of things are also present in Hebrew and Greek, and sometimes they don't translate well. Or sometimes the translators say, whoa, they're going to, they can't put crap in the Bible. They're going to freak out on me. They won't, they won't put this, to, they, they won't publish this. I have to change it. So there are some euphemisms here, right? So Genesis 15, as for you, as for yourself, you, Abram, shall go to your ancestors in peace and, and be buried in a good old place. You are going to die. You're going to go with your ancestors in peace. Well, that's, that's a little different, right? And this is an idiom, uh, euphemistic, euphemism and an idiom at the same time. Or Leviticus, uh, where it says, None of you shall approach anyone near of kin to uncover nakedness. What does that mean? You're not supposed to strip someone? No, that's not that. Uh, it's uncovering nakedness is a use uh, to dis discuss sexual intercourse. So it's saying don't, don't engage in incest, right? But they're using a euphemism for that. Uh, so over in Genesis... Well, there's this really weird passage in Genesis 9 where Ham saw the nakedness of his father and then told his two brothers outside. And then Ham is later cursed, and we're not really sure why. Is it because he saw your dad naked? No, that's not it, right? There is this implication that Sam, per, or Ham, excuse me, perhaps engaged in some incestuous act with his father um, because just to see it, isn't necessarily worthy of being a curse, but is this a euphemism? Some say yes, some say no. First um, Samuel 24, Saul went into the cave to cover his feet. I'm sorry, what? What does that mean? What do you do when you cover your feet? Well, back in this day, before modern plumbing, you didn't have a, a, a throne to sit on, right? There's wordplay there for you. Uh, um, you have to, to squat down, and if you have a robe... What do you do when you squat with a robe on? You're covering your feet, right? So he's, he's defecating. He's relieving himself. Think squatting here. And this is important as you visualize this story because as he's doing his deed, David then comes up behind him and cuts his robe to say, I could have killed you. I could have killed you and I didn't. You were in the most precarious position. I could have killed you and become king right away, but I didn't. Look how... Look how Honor, honoring I am. Exodus, 
this is one of the weirdest passages from the whole of the Bible. Uh, God gets angry at Moses, and we're not really sure why. And then God, Moses' wife, Zipporah, takes a flint, cuts off her son's foreskin, and touches Moses' feet with it. What? And said, truly you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Even, even with the understanding it through euphemism, it's still a little odd. Um, feet can represent male genitalia here. So this is an idea of, you know, for the Jewish faith, circumcision is very important. And so was this son uncircumcised? Right? God was angry at Moses, maybe because he didn't circumcise his child here. And so Zephyr is like, well, I'm not going to let you die for this. And look. This, look, God, look what we've just done. This is, this is an issue of his loins, right? This is his son, and we have done this. He is now part of the covenant, too, right? An odd story. But with, why would you touch his feet with it? That doesn't make any sense until you then realize that there's euphemism going on here. And sometimes it's ambiguous, right? Euphemism isn't always clear. So in the book of Ruth, uh, Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, when Boaz lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go in and uncover his feet and lie down, and he'll tell you what to do. Okay, so I just saw some people make some funny faces, right? So I don't know what this means. Uncover his feet and he'll tell you what to do? Is, right? Um, earlier we talked about Ruth as maybe being romance literature. So is this... Um, are they beating around the bush here, and are they talking about something sexual? I don't know. Or is she just engaging in ancient rites of hospitality and maybe washing his feet, actual feet? I don't know. Uh, then let's talk about anthropomorphism. We've probably heard this one. Uh, the other one we may, maybe haven't heard is anthropopathism. Uh, we'll come to that in a moment. But sometimes we regard the literal as metaphor. Um, so, when we talk about God, we give attribution, uh, anthropomorphism, anthropomorphism is the attribution of human characteristics or behavior uh, to God, animal, or an object, right? But when we talk about God in anthropomorphic ways, we say, you know, God, his right arm, or his right hand, his arm, his feet, mouth, eyes, ears, all over the Bible, we talk about certain aspects of God. Do we believe that God, this is before Jesus, mind you, right? These are all Old Testament images. Um, did God have all of these things? Did God have nostrils? I don't, I don't think so, but I don't know, right? I've never seen God. I don't know. But a lot of people in the synagogue and the Jewish faith were uncomfortable with these sorts of images. We are less so uh, offended by these because we have Jesus, right? And we know he, Jesus has all of these. But when we talk about God the Father before God ever takes human form, this can be off-putting. And so lots of Jewish, the Jewish tradition says, oh, we're just talking about God metaphorically. He doesn't really have any of those things. But then anthropopathism says it's an attribution of human emotions to a deity, right? Uh, so like Exodus 32, 14. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. Well, you can't mean that. That can't be really what you mean, right? God can't change his mind, right? Well, but, that, but that's what it says. The Lord changed his mind. I could find another dozen examples throughout the Old Testament where it says God repented, God changed his mind. What do we do with that? Most theologians throughout time have disregarded those passages as speaking metaphorically. That that is our understanding of the situation, but God can't change his mind. And now there is a new stream of, of belief in the church that maybe we got that part wrong. That belief that God doesn't change, God doesn't change his mind, or can't think differently, or can't evolve and, 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 and grow on a certain subject. Maybe, maybe we were wrong back there. So there is a new wave in the church in the last century to really reevaluate this. Uh, then we have images of God, right? These are all metaphors. We talk about God as being an eagle, a lamb, a lion. We don't actually think that God is roaring and God is bleeding like a, you know, a lamb. We don't think those things. We also, when we talk about God, um, we can talk about various professions and offices. 
God is judge, king, shepherd, sovereign, warrior. Um, but we don't actually think he, he works as a judge in the court of law somewhere, right? Um, so we, we understand these not in their literal sense, but in a modified and in a, in a metaphoric sense. And there's all sorts of other images associated with God we could talk about as well. Sarcasm, right? Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he's kind of giving them a little bit of a lecture here. And he says, oh, okay, already you have what you want. Already you have become rich. Quite apart from us, you've become kings. Not, right? He's being sarcastic here. Because then a few verses later, he's saying, I'm not writing this to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. But if you just read it flatly, you're not getting it. You're like, why is he saying that? I don't, I didn't, that doesn't make sense here. Well, if you apply this, you don't just read it literally, but literarily, you see this is sarcasm, right? And this is just one example. I could keep going. There's alliteration, right? Alliteration is when you um, use the same initial consonant sounds often. Um, sometimes we have that in English in the Bible, but that's often just by chance. Um, because, of course, it wasn't written in, in English. So we have it here in Hebrew, Psalm 14. Uh, deliverance for Israel is Yeshua Yisrael. And here is restores the fortunes is Shub. Oh, here it is. Shuv, Shuv, right? So there is some alliteration there in the Hebrew. And wordplay um, Isaiah 61, one of my favorite chapters of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, sent me to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland, literally a turban, for ashes. Um, and this, this phrase here, to give to those who mourn in Zion a turban, uh, the phrase in the Hebrew is peer tahat eper, Pe'er eper, pe'er eper. There's this like semblance of word, like these words sound similar. It's be, there's a play on words. It's a reversal of sound. Instead of ashes, instead of mourning, what I'm going to do, I'm going to give you a party hat, right? I'm going to give you a turban. But we don't say turban. Why don't we say turban? Because it gives us certain associations, right? So we say garland, which is kind of a strange term we don't even really use all that often. But, so there's all sorts of things going on across the board, right? Acrostics, right? A lot of us probably did these in school, right? You put your, write your name, and then for every letter of your name, you have an adjective, right? So Michael is mighty and imaginative, or whatever like that, right? So that also happens in scripture too, such as, uh, oh, I should also mention, yeah, for preliterate and oral cultures, mnemonics, or, or, or acrostics are great mnemonics, right? If you can think through something alphabetically, and then you can have attached scripture to that, uh, it's very helpful. Think of, what are, what are, does anyone know what these are? Did I, did I hear someone over the corner? Order of operations, right? PEMDAS, parentheses, exponent, right? That's how you do order of operations in math, right? Please excuse my dear Aunt Sally. Um, or, anybody? My very educated mother just served us nine pizzas. The planets, right? But if, of course, we don't have planets anymore, so it, my mother just served us nine. I don't know. Anyhow, Psalm 34. This is an acrostic in the Hebrew, right? You go from Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, He, Vav, Zayin, Chet, Tet, all the way down uh, to the last letter, which is Tab, and then you have a repeated letter. But here is an acrostic. Again, we don't sense this in the English. It's important to know that these things are there. Like, how do we know that these are there? If we just have a normal Bible, maybe we don't. This is why study Bibles are helpful. Commentaries are helpful. We also have hyperbole, exaggerated statements. So like when the Pharisees say to one another, you see, you can do nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Speaking of Jesus. Well, the whole world obviously hasn't gone after him because, right, they're, they're, in, they're in Israel. They're in this little area. People in China haven't heard of Jesus yet. The whole world hasn't gone over after him. They're speaking uh, hyperbolically. An oxymoron. We know this one, right? A figure of speech in which contradictory terms appear in conjunction with each other, like jumbo shrimp. 
is jumbo or is it shrimp? Is it, is it what, right? So um, sometimes we don't get this because things have become everyday for us, right? They've become banal. And uh, the original may have been probably pretty shocking, right? We just think jumbo shrimp and we're like, yeah, it's jumbo shrimp. That makes sense to me. But for the first person who ever invented jumbo shrimp, everyone probably like, jumbo shrimp? You can't say that. That doesn't make sense. Well, same thing here. The good Samaritan? You've got to be joking. Samaritans can't be good. Everybody knows that. Well, we read that and we're like, oh, they were good Samaritans. We just know it, right? It has become everyday and banal for us. So it doesn't have the same effect. Um, also, there is writing in response to propaganda or news of the day. When Domitian made royal appearances, he was accompanied by a choir of 24 people. And they were all singing, Our Lord and our God, you are worthy to receive honor, glory, and power. Whoa. When Domitian, a, a Roman ruler, was walking around, that's what everyone said to him? Well, go look at Revelation chapter 4, verse 10. Well, now who are they saying that about? There's choirs of angels singing that to God. That's pretty powerful stuff. If you are an oppressed people group, and your oppressors are doing this one thing to say, look at us, we're so powerful. And then someone comes along and says, he thinks he's powerful? He has no idea. It's God. And that's who we're going to be saying that about. Same thing there, uh, Son of God. Very title, title we use all the time for Jesus. That was a title for a Roman emperor, right? And by using these, Jesus and the gospel writers, I believe, were being subversive in their choice of words and responding to their sociopolitical and cultural milieu of their day. Uh, we'll skip over that one. Uh, there's also chiasm. I will just run through this. Um, this is something we don't do it really at all in English, but was very important to the biblical writers. Just look down here and you'll, you'll start to get it. Um, a, B, C, D, C, B, A, right? There is parallelism between this A and this A, this B and this B, this C and this C. And what's most important here is D. And he said to them, does a lamp come, but to come to light, to be put under a bushel or under a bed, nor does anything become secret, and not to be put on a lampstand except to be disclosed, for there is nothing hidden. It's kind of, you know, when, when we often tell a story, we, t we give a little, we give some clues, right? There's some development of the characters, and then at the very end of the story, there's the climax, and it's over, right? Not so often in stories in this period of time, there was often a steep incline, the main point of the story is here, and then you've got a whole half of the story left. The point, the climax, is hidden in the middle. That's chiasm. Okay, I'm going to pause for a moment, uh, to see if we have any, whew, I know that's a lot. I just threw a whole bunch at you. What are we, what are we still questioning? What are we wondering about? Before we move on, I want to talk about, um, the next 15 minutes or so, I want to talk about some development of theologies or progression of theologies throughout scripture. Do we have any questions, thoughts, concerns? Do we want to talk more about order of operations or, no? just curious about the um, thought that you had mentioned, uh, the discussion about God's changeability. Mm. So. Oh, ooh. that could be a whole year-long class in itself. Um, yeah. Do you, is there, you just want me to talk more about it? Yeah. Um, the major theology today that's really been developed over the last hundred years developed particularly by White House, but other, Whitehead, excuse me, um, by other theologians as well, is it started off with the idea that God can suffer. Um, an ancient belief in the early church was Patropathianism, that God cannot suffer, the Father cannot suffer. But throughout scripture, we t hear about God, you know, being saddened by things that, was, that were going on. Does that mean there, there are, obviously, there's, there's two levels to us, right? There are certain things. That I'm always going to be Michael Wallace. I'm always going to be in this body. I can't switch to another body, right? There's always certain things that are unchangeable about me. 
but there are certain things that are changeable about me, right? I can go, go get, a, a, you know, we can have another child and I'll have, a, my family will be bigger. We can move to a different house. Certain things can change and certain things can't. Ancient, in the, the ancient said nothing about God changes. And more modern, in more modern sense, we've said there are things that never change about God, but maybe there are some that do. Uh, the whole field, is, modern field is called process theology. Um, I, I don't know all too much about it. Um, I've, I've only studied it a little bit. Um, but I think it's pretty, as you read scripture, uh, there are some instances that God changes. Not on, the, not on the, the, the base sense, right? God is still faithful, God is still just, God is still loving. But can God's thoughts on something evolve? Can God momentarily become sad or grieved or repent of something that God did? Those are big questions. Those are big questions. Sandy. Yeah, and I think how that might be um, when God told Abraham that he was going to destroy Sodom. Oh, yeah. And, and um, he pleaded with him not to because Lot was there. Yeah. And how many people would have to be yeah. righteous for you to spare the city. Right. I mean, I think that's an example of maybe how God reconsidered his plan. Right. And had there been enough people, right, he's saying, if, if you remember the story um, Abraham and God are talking. Abraham says, don't destroy the city. If there's a hundred people, will you still destroy the city? No, I won't. I won't destroy the city if there's a hundred righteous people. How about 50? How about five? Right, he goes all the way down, and there's no righteous people. And God says, okay, I'm done. <laughs> you're, like, you're like the only one, or I'm going to destroy this city. And yeah, that's a possibility that God would have changed his mind. And Moses, there's all sorts of stories in Moses, in the, the in Moses narratives, um, where God changes, seems to change his mind. Or Moses stands in the, in the breach and says, don't destroy these people, they're your people. What's wrong? Why are you upset? And um, again, are those, as we talked about a few weeks ago, are we, what are those stories? Are, are those truly depicting God in those moments? Uh, is that, um, what, what is the purpose of those stories? I don't know. Some of those are some of those are crystal clear, and some of those are really fuzzy and hard to hard to parse out. Okay, so now uh, in our remaining um, fifteen minutes here, I want to talk also about the progression and development of some points of theology. Um, so there's this question: Is God close to us? Is God? Close, me, the word is imminent, or is God transcendent? Is God far away? Uh, Genesis, did I hear both? both. You yeah, both, right. Well, in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, God is portrayed as being very close to us. God is walking in the garden, he's playing in the dirt, and he is um, planting a garden. Wow. You mean God was actually there in the Garden of Eden planting and walking around? Yeah, cool stuff. But then you go back to Genesis chapter 1, and you're like, well, wait a second. I thought, what, what do you mean? God, in, chapter, in Genesis chapter 1, is far away and says, let there be light. Let the seas divide. Let there be animals, right? So there's this, this hands-off um, approach in Genesis 1, and a very hands-on approach in Genesis 2 and 3. What's going on? What's going on? They're two different creation stories, paired right side by side with one another. And uh, a theory probably developed 200 years ago by uh, Julius Wilhausen um, says that we have to understand that there's something more going on. They, what's called, he called documentary hypothesis, that this is probably uh, a rolling text. Certain people have added onto it. There's been all these traditions that have come together and are now side by side. So uh, Wilhausen and many scholars since then would say, well, this is an older tradition, this Genesis 2 and 3, thinking of God playing in the dirt, wasn't that cool? But then some priests came along and said, mm, God can't play in the dirt. We can't let him get his hands dirty. We can't do that. So that's not how God created. God said, from far away, hands off, let there be light. So we may say, well, why, why do we have two of them? It was an ancient um, way to preserve tradition. And to, so maybe the one group had this story and one group had this story and we all came together 
and we wanted to maintain harmony, and we wanted to maintain tradition. So we put them side by side, thankfully, because they really help us understand that God can be, as Jack just said a few moments ago, God can be both. Uh, and so there, then we have a question of who to worship, right? From, this is even pre-biblical, right? Who do we worship? Well, there are many gods, right? We worship all the gods. We make sacrifices to them, and we, we pray to all of them, and especially when we have a particular problem going on. We're living in the world of polytheism, right? Out of polytheism emerged monolatry, which is uh, a good Scrabble word. Uh, I always, I don't know about you, but I, I'm a big word guy. So, monolatry, good word to know. It means worship of one. Worship of one. So this is the, the Jewish people when they said Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohim Adonai Echad, the hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They were thinking, we worship this one God, and this God is God over all. There may be other gods, but we don't pray to them. We don't worship them. We don't have idols of them. We don't talk about them. We worship on one God that is Yahweh or Jehovah, right? We worship, on the, we worship one God. That is monolatry. Then, out of monolatry came monotheism, right? One God. Not worship of one, but it's, it's, well, there is just one God. All the rest of you are all just wrong if you believe there's any other God but God. From that, in the New Testament era, then we move on to binitarianism. Binitary uh, means that there's two that are one, Right? Uh, the Gospel of John, you hear all over the place how J God, Jesus says the Father and the, the I are one. Not talking about the Spirit yet. So there's some idea that Jesus is God, but is there still God the Father? Yes. Okay, so there's two. Well, then we come to Trinitarianism, right? And you see, you see, um, hints of this throughout the scriptures, right? So like in the Great Commission where Jesus says, go into all the world baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Well, why don't, why isn't it just God, the Father, and the Son? Because the Holy Spirit's important too, right? So it's a development, again, from lots of gods to, well, there may be lots, let's just worship one, to no, none of that's true. There's just one. Well, but maybe we know God in two, well, really, we know God is three, right? So I tease this out to point out the fact that there is progression, right? That we, as a faith, our Judeo-Christian faith, we have progressed. Um, and so the scriptures go along with us. There are some scriptures that are very much in this, uh, in this box, right? The monolatry that say... Um, our God is above all other gods. Well, but, but there aren't any other gods. Well, you're, you're thinking of a very, you're thinking in this way, but whoever wrote that is still here. They're still thinking, well, there might be other gods, but we don't, we don't worship any other gods. We just worship this one. Does this make sense? Is this new for anybody? Is this like, whoo, shocking or questions on this? the difference between Islam mm. and Christianity because Islam is monotheism and they think we are you know heretics because we mm -hmm. believe in a triune god right they think it's three people right and that can't be yeah you know so that's it's yeah maybe we've evolved from that or I don't know it's just that that's just the difference though yeah so I think we progressed and evolved um I mean, even, even just considering our Jewish brothers and sisters, right? So Judaism and Islam are here. Early, early Christianity moved here very, moved through Binitarianism very quickly and then settled on Trinitarianism, right? Oop, Debbie. And what about the religions that pray to Saint this and Saint this and Blessed Virgin Mary? Oh, um, great question. Um, my understanding of those who pray to saints or the Virgin Mary. Um, where do I go with this? I don't think that 
even those people would say that they're praying to gods as much as they're praying to intermediaries to help them out, right? Um, and for those people who do that, I would challenge them to say, if you need an intermediary, you have one, and that's Jesus. Um, if you need someone to go before the Father with your prayers, you've got someone who is also God. Go to Jesus, and Jesus will t gather your prayers and take them to God the Father. Um, so I think it's, for me, and this is a very Protestant um, perspective, but for me, praying to, to saints or to Mary, so like, come on, Mary, you know Jesus, you can, you can help me out here, right? It's a poor understanding of our relationship to Jesus and Jesus' relationship to God the Father uh, and how Jesus takes our prayers to God, right? Jesus serves as an intermediary. That's, that's clear throughout the epistles. Um, so, Jack, last question. There are uh, many references in the Bible to angels. Yes. Where do you see angels playing into that whole scheme? Uh, oh. Ooh, here's a good one. Oh. Yeah, uh, we're actually going to start, we're going to talk about demons in a moment. We're not going to talk about angels, but um, I happen to wonder, and this is off the cuff, so don't quote me on this. Um, I happen to wonder if in this move from polytheism to monolatry to monotheism, um, if there was, I mean, angels are, are, are all over Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern ancient years culture. Um, not just limited to Judaism. But I have to wonder if in this move from polytheism to monolatry to there's only one God, but there's some divine beings too. I wonder if in between these, if there was a really a, an a growth in the, the theology of angels because there are these other beings doing magical things and we're not really sure what's going on here. And they, they're not God because we just worship... Not only do we just worship one God, but there's only one God. I wonder if the development and the, the explosion of angels and theology of angels came about in between this period. Yeah, great question. Um, so now we talk about evil. Um, so is there, whew, in six minutes, can I do it? Is there a personified evil? So when I say Satan, what image pops into your mind? Oh, there he go. He already's, he's already gone. Let's wait for him. Is that him? Okay. That is about the least creepy image of Satan I could find, by the way. Um, it took me quite a while. Um, so what's the first instance we hear about Satan in the Bible? So I heard a few say Garden of Eden and in Genesis. Satan is not there. If you look at the text, it just says a snake. That's it. That's it. Only in post-biblical tradition do we say that snake must have been Satan or the devil. It's a post-biblical tradition. Probably we can attribute it to Augustine in about the 4th century. Before that, everyone just, oh, it's a snake. But we, are the, we inherit this tradition and we say, oh, okay. That's Satan. Now we know. Now we know. We've, we've figured it out. But we can say that, but we also have to realize, what does the text say? The text doesn't say this is Satan. Numbers 22 is the first time that we actually hear of Satan. It's the story of Balaam. Remember that funny story of Balaam and his talking ass, right? It's a donkey, right? But there's, it's, it's funny, right? At least it was in my youth group days. I don't know. Um, we just like reading that story aloud. Um, and an angel stands in as a Satan. An angel, a messenger of God, stands in the way and says, uh-uh, you're not getting by. And he's described as a Satan. Satan is the Hebrew word for uh, adversary. Uh, King David is even described as Satan, adversary, over in 1 Samuel 29. We have taken this word Satan and made it a proper noun. It is a person. But in the Hebrew, it's not a person. It refers to an accuser or an enemy. 
right? So, what is this origin story of the devil? How did the devil come to be? Anybody? You can look up there and get the an- kind of the answer. <laughs> what do we think? What do we know? What do we heard? Nobody's going to take the bait. Okay. Um, so, I always grew up thinking, okay, devil is a fallen angel and God, you know. I heard this whole story and then I opened the Bible and I was like, where is this? I couldn't find it. I couldn't find it. There is a good tradition over in the book of Jubilees, which is a good book to read, um, where God granted the Satan, the Satan, authority over a group of fallen angels to tempt humans to sin and punish them. What? What? That doesn't make sense. Um, there is an idea that as, again, so considering that big chart of who do we worship, right, all the way from polytheism to Trinitarianism, there's a progression of thought here. And initially, Satan was not a proper noun. It was just a noun, accuser. And used more and more in the intertestamental period between Old and New, or Hebrew Bible and New Testament. Um, Lots of scholars say there were some influences from uh, Zoroastrianism. uh, And that's why we don't see a personified evil as clearly in the Hebrew Bible. But there's something happens in those 400 years, and then the New Testament period, Jesus comes, and Jesus is tempted by the devil. Jesus uh, casts out demons. Well, what? Where did those come from? Well, in the intertestamental period, Zoroastrianism probably had an influence on the faith. Not saying it's right or wrong, I'm just saying that there was a progression of thought and understanding um, oh, I want to get to this, but we're not going to. Um, afterlife, I will give, I'll give you 30 seconds to it. In the af- uh, Hebrew Bible, um, whenever you died, whether you were good or bad or faithful or not, or Jewish or Gentile, you went down to Sheol. Everybody. Everybody went down to Sheol. And then uh, you would wait for the world to come. Olam haba, the world to come. You'd wait. And maybe there would be something better. We're not quite sure what. Maybe God will vindicate us. We're faithful. We're not sure. But then there's a progression of thought. The second Maccabees is from that intertestamental period. Um, uh, and then we, we hear Jesus saying, I am the resurrection. Forget about the shale stuff. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Uh, and essentially what I want to point out here is that diverse beliefs remain in Christianity about what actually happens in the afterlife, right? Is there a hell? Is there not? Do we, do some of us go to hell? Do some of us get out of hell? Is there purgatory? Um, And there's lots of views here. There's a traditional view. There's um, terminal punishment, also called annihilationism, that, yeah, you'll go to hell if you're not a faithful person, and maybe you'll just be snuffed out of existence, which is, whew, that's scary stuff. Um, do we go to heaven when we die? Is that our ultimate destination or future home? Most would say yes. Some would, though, say that's not quite clear in the scriptures. Maybe it's actually this new earth that Revelation talks about. Maybe that's our future home. So as we progress, our theology progresses with us and our understanding of scripture and God and the world, and the Spirit is still speaking. And I believe that the Spirit helps us but we're still in diverse beliefs. Okay. Uh, I have, yeah, we'll just run through this. Okay, so here are our takeaways from the week. We don't read the Bible literally. We read it literally. Uh, there are literary features throughout Scripture that we must be aware of. The Bible is a compendium of books and doesn't provide a unified theological witness. From Genesis to Revelation, it doesn't say the same thing. There's a progression, Right? And we stand in a stream, um, we stand in a stream of a long-standing tradition of the faithful who've been trying to figure it out. And uh, it's a big job. It's a big job to figure it all out. Um, the existential questions of reality, we have to be okay that some of our questions will never be answered. That's okay. But rather than losing hope, we should be encouraged by the fact that God is with us and we're on the way. There's always more to learn. Hallelujah and amen.
Amen. Uh, I'm over time. Let us pray. Almighty God and Father, we give you thanks for the gift of this day. We give you thanks for your holy scriptures that we can learn about uh, the saints of the ages and how you have watched over us and cared for us and loved us, showered us with your love. We ask God that you would uh, be with us and help us open our minds to the truths of your scripture. Give us uh, encouragement when we open scripture. May we know what to read, where to go, and how to uh, delve and to dive deeply into your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us, be with us throughout this week until we gather again. In the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we together say, Amen. Amen.